In 2009, an acclaimed historian of the Holocaust was shown a picture of one family's execution by Ukrainian allies of the Nazis some 70 years earlier. In the years that followed, her research couldn't identify the victims, but it did name their killers and lays bare the horror of the Holocaust on an intimate level. She's Dr. Wendy Lauer this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me from his home in Rhode Island is my friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, journalists, scholars, and more to make sense of the stories that shape public life in the United States today. This week, we're joined by an acclaimed historian of the Holocaust, Dr. Wendy Lauer holds the John K. Roth Chair at Claremont McKenna College in Claremont, California, and is the author of a powerful new book, The Ravine, A Family, A Photograph, A Holocaust Massacre Revealed. Wendy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me today. Your scholarship is um, tremendously powerful uh, and shines some light into some of the darkest history in, in, of humanity. I'm curious, though, what drew you to scholarship of the Holocaust? I don't have a personal connection to the history as far as any kind of family um, connection. I'm not the descendant of victims or perpetrators um, or witnesses. I I had a relative who fought in the war, an uncle who was a pilot. But um, this history speaks to me in a different way, not in that kind of a personal family way. Um, of confrontation, but in a more um, academic, but even a kind of a universal uh, understanding of this this problem of of genocide as not strictly one of of an ethnic group or ethnic legacy, but one that we all have to um, encounter and grapple with and hopefully try to prevent. Do you do you find in, in, in teaching this to students, how receptive, how receptive are they to uh, both the overall history, but even just their level of awareness before they come into your class? Thank you. That's such a great question, because that's one of the um, issues that's underlying the ravine, and that is that students, as with the passage of time and the passing of survivors and eyewitnesses, uh, we have to rely more and more on the source material from this history and um, and study it more closely and interrogate it more um, uh, seriously, because we don't have those folks to talk to to kind of fill in the gaps or 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 open up new lines of inquiry. We're really going to be reliant more and more on kind of the physical remains of that history of the documentation and of these mass murder sites um, that still uh, uh, really proliferate, you know, have proliferated in the Second World War that are all over places like Ukraine, which is the uh, geographically the focus of the book. So there's a lot more educating that needs to happen as we move farther away from this time period. And students who come into the classroom, I observed, 
think they know the history when they see an image that's um, prevalent on the internet, for instance, like iconic images of the entry gates of Auschwitz-Birkenau or of deportations or Jews in ghettos, certain things that are commonly displayed in museums um, with often sometimes not very um, detailed captions or captions at all. And their sense of history becomes a kind of visual recall without the critical academic inquiry that is important for understanding the history, understanding what happened. So do you find this is also true of students regarding other genocides? I'm thinking of Native Americans uh, in, in this hemisphere, particularly in the United States. I'm also thinking of, of the history of the treatment of black people, you know, years ago and really continuing in some sense until today. Do you find that that also is something that is eye-opening for, for young kids today? Absolutely. I mean, two things you raise in, in posing that question. Firstly, um, there is a long history of genocide going back to ancient times, which predated the invention of the handheld camera, which is why we have this photograph at the center of my book that I can study. Our witness was able to take those pictures of the kind of the ultimate act of evil of the, of the murder of that Jewish family. So for other cases of genocide, we don't have that visual record. We have some uh, murals and paintings, say, in, from Central American cases, but we don't have that wealth of material that would then um, draw more attention to that, that case and more inquiry and, and understanding of it. Um, but so we have to remember that the lack of that material doesn't mean that that history didn't happen because we live in such a visual age, we tend to associate kind of reality with that visual evidence. Um, and, um, you know, secondly, the importance of the, um, the visual in this case is not only as evidence, but also in shaping our, our memory or our perceptions of what happened. When we find a photo like the one that is in the ravine, um, much like if one were to uncover, and I posed this question in the beginning of the book, an image of murder, a lynching, we have an incredibly um, pretty uh, sizable record of photos on lynching and several books have been written about that. And I would encourage more people to look into that and to delve into the, all of the people uh, portrayed in those images, those witnesses, um, they're often very disturbing, um, showing dead um, black men mostly who were hanged and um, crowds of people even kind of gleefully smiling and gesturing around them. And who are those people in that photograph that participated in that public event of murder? So I, at the beginning of the book, I say, when you find something like this, um, documentation of murder, uh, historical documentation of a crime, doesn't one, isn't one compelled to look more in, you know, look more deeply into that and to try to, in some ways, kind of solve that crime or at least understand that event. So I recall with great clarity reading a few weeks ago a review of the ravine in the New York Times, and it was a glowing review as it well should have been. I was sitting, it was Sunday, I was sitting on my living room couch, thumbing through as I always do. I usually start with the bestsellers because I have an interest in that. But then I started leaping through. And when I saw that photograph, I was stunned. And I have remained haunted by it. And so this might be a good time for you to describe that photo in some detail, particularly for those in our audience who are just listening and not watching this show. Absolutely. Um, I've been working in this field for decades. I started my first trip to Ukraine, um, which I started to conduct field research was the summer of 1992. I worked in the Holocaust Museum um, for many years and surrounded by a lot of this visual evidence. And um, one of the scholars of atrocity photography, probably the most famous is Susan Zontag, 
who argued um, that one over time can become desensitized or inured to these kinds of images. And she, she, back, she backed off on that argument in her later work um, because the reality is that we don't. We don't become inured, we don't become desensitized. A, a photo like this still has the power to stop us in our tracks and, and force us to look more closely. That's really uh, what I think is um, important, uh, important um, argument in the book. In the image we see, uh, for those of you who are listening and who can't see it, um, a family, a Jewish family, standing a woman, kind of standing in a perpendicular position, kind of bending over, hold right at the center of the photograph, holding the little boy's hand. He's probably like three or five years old. He's barefooted, he's kneeling. Um, there is, as I looked at this more closely with the um, advantage of digital technology, I could zoom in and out. Um, ultimately, I also identified another child on the lap of the woman kind of slipping from her, her knees. And they are at the precipice at the edge of a large pit that looks like a ravine and they are being shot. And it is a kind of action shot, the act of murder. The smoke is billowing and inhaling above their heads. The killers are very close to them, a few feet. It looks like one of the killers, the two Germans in uh, their official uniforms and, and caps with shiny visors. One seems to even have his hand placed on the woman's back. Maybe he's going to actually push her into the ravine. And one of the um, collaborators are two Ukrainians in woolen coats, Red Army repurposed coats with armbands, holding rifles, um, doing the shooting. They're, they're, they're grimacing, their expression and their posture is showing us that they're actually um, pulling the trigger and, and responding to that blast. In the foreground, we see shoes, empty shoes that belong to a man, um, probably a male Jewish victim, perhaps the father or an uncle, a family member who was killed shortly before them. His coat is lying on the ground, kind of crumpled and empty. There are papers strewn about. There's bullet casings, what I call the litter of mass murder, uh, also strewn there. And we can also see a man in a cap in the background, an onlooker, an eyewitness, and it's happening in broad daylight. The light is passing through um, the trees in the background. It's incredible. And I will say, I have visited Dachau, and that, of course, is a very sobering, sobering experience. But this photograph has just that additional quality that connects emotionally, you know, on a very dark level. Uh, so you set off to find out who the people were in the photograph. Tell us about that search. Absolutely. Initially, when I saw this, when it was brought to my attention in 2009, uh, my first inclination was to pursue the killers. I was actually working on a case against a high-ranking SS man in Frankfurt and had flown back to Washington from Germany. I was living in Germany, um, doing more research and writing and interviewing um, perpetrators and, and witnesses. And I was in the archives and these um, uh, Czech journalists came in from Prague with this photograph. They had found it in the archive um, in Prague and wanted to know more about it. And it was just by chance that I was there and I um, have done a lot of work on Ukraine and they knew that, that the photograph had been taken in Ukraine. Um, there was information on the photograph. It was taken October 13th, 1941 in this town Mirapol by a Slovakian photographer who was a guard member of a guard unit. So this, you know, um, came to my attention and set me on this journey of inquiry. And I started with the killers because at the time I thought, well, obviously these victims um, cannot be rescued. Um, I can I, re I can try to restore their dignity and their, through their identity. Um, and try to tell their stories. This is not how they wanted to be photographed at the final moments of their lives. So it was very important for me to pursue their 
stories. Um, but as far as the sense of justice, I started with the killers um, because I realized that some of these killers um, had not been apprehended and could still be at large. And so that's really where I began the inquiry. Um, and I, I ultimately um, <laughs> was not able to identify the victims by name. That was a really frustrating endeavor. It took years and it just made me realize that all the work that we've done in the memorial culture um, and in genocide studies, that there is this um, moment of just, of, of where we can't find out everything we want to find out about the victims, that it's not the genocide heirs in some ways, they don't win, but they are able to suppress that because they kill these victims without any documentation, leaving any names behind. They're so thorough that there were no family members to come forward to register them as missing. They are kind of the missing missing, as I call them in one chapter. Um, I was able to identify the perpetrators, actually, uh, and that, that's another story in the book. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is the acclaimed historian Dr. Wendy Lauer. Her latest work is The Ravine, a family, a photograph, a Holocaust massacre revealed. Well, I, we want to talk a little bit about that story, but but let me ask, though, how did that photograph come to be? I think that we've all seen other imagery from the Holocaust of, of other executions, uh, but I've always sort of marveled, did, did, did they know they were taking a photograph of, of a crime, or was this... Well, let me just ask you, what? how did this photograph come to be? Well, the photographer, the Slovakian guard, was a hobby photographer. I mean, he, um, the camera, the handheld camera, was patented, the Leica, the Zeiss icon, he had a Zeiss icon, it was patented in the 1920s, and then it hit the consumer market in the 1930s. And so there is the widespread consumption of the camera and this culture that's emerging in the 1930s. And that is going to be very important for the history of the Holocaust and the evidence that we have. So here we have this Slovakian. He doesn't, and this was an incredible discovery in the book. I, I thought anyone who could take a picture, such a stable image, it's in such a close proximity to the killing um, and someone in uniform was one of the collaborators. We can see the stark depiction here of collaboration of the Germans and the Ukrainians shoulder to shoulder. They don't speak the same language. They have a shared anti-Semitism. They kind of know what they're gonna do and they're gonna you know, share in this horrific um, act of murder. The collaborator, uh, the Slovakian, right? Turns out that he wasn't a collaborator in that sense. He heard the um, sounds of the gunfire and the, the screams and the commotion, and his commander said to him, his name is Lubomir Skrobina, the photographer, go check it out. And he went and he grabbed his camera because he was the company scribe and he was documenting what was happening. But he had already seen pogroms 
occurring in Ukraine as the, as his unit moved, you know, west, uh, eastward, sorry, um, from Poland in towards Russia. He knew that the Holocaust, as we know today, was part of this Nazi um, campaign, and he found it absolutely abhorrent. He was writing letters to his wife, just, you know, disgusted by it all, talking about his hair turning gray and the blackness kind of seeping in his brain. Um, so he was incredibly traumatized and distressed by what he was seeing. So he grabbed his camera, not to humiliate the victims, but to document what was happening as an act of resistance. So he took these pictures, he um, uh, hid them, brought them back to his hometown in Banska Bystrica, which was a center of resistance in Slovakia during the Second World War, and shared these images with um, Jewish, uh, uh, a Jewish doctor, Jewish leaders who were in Bratislava said, this is what's going to happen to you if you answer the call to be deported or show up at the train station. This is what's going on um, in the East. And he ended up hiding um, some Jewish, um, <clears throat> Slovakian Jews into the attic of his house. Uh, and one of them actually, the doctor, uh, actually delivered his son, Lubomir Jr., in their home in 1943. My goodness. That, that's an incredible story. How did you, was he alive when, when you found this photograph? Did you get to interview him? Did you interview family members? How did you put that story together? It's just extraordinary that you were able to do it, however you did it. Yeah, I mean, Lubomir, he died in, uh, Skrobina died in 2005. So unfortunately, I wasn't able to meet him. He was born in 1916. And I always remind my students, he's born in 1916. He's young man, you know, like college age and thrust into this this campaign. Uh, identified himself as completely apolitical, hated to put on a uniform. Um, so it's also a good reminder as far as just what young men are are forced to uh, in the in in war, what they're forced to experience and witness, um, and that not all men in uniform who go to war are pro-war. So in that way, so he or pro-genocide for that matter. So um, what happened was with that information of his, you know, having his name. Of course, I started to go through Facebook. I went to Prague. I was trying to find him. I ultimately was able to find his um, son, Lubomir Jr. Uh, I had the photographer's home address in Banska Bystrica, and they still had that home, and they still had his radio shop. He was a technician. Um, and so I was able to go and meet his son and meet his daughter. And then they shared more materials with me. They shared the letters that he had written to his wife and how much his wife participated in with him. They were together. They were in the resistance movement. So, Wendy, what can you tell us about the men who pulled the triggers? Okay, well, that was uh, not what I expected either. Um, first of all, the men, the German men in the photograph, I started to study their uniforms very closely. And while the German documentation had had put um, so-called Einsatzgruppen and some of these expeditionary kind of killing forces in that area, they had put the order police. The, 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 in, in perpetrator studies in, in the world of Holocaust history, we tend to focus on uh, the main um, uh, units uh, under Himmler and under the army, these militarized units that participated in, in the mass murder in what I, we call the Holocaust by bullets outside the camp system. This is representative of more than a million, maybe as many as two million Jews who were gunned down near their hometowns, not gassed in Auschwitz-Birkenau and, and Treblinka and Sobibor um, and those centers. So this is a depiction of that. Um, once I had to go into these military records, it's not, happen not happening in the camp system. So I'm not looking at records of Auschwitz-Birkenau. I'm looking at actual security units in a military campaign. I, I noticed that the, the units that were located there uh, on record 
their uniforms had to match their uniforms to the uniforms in the photo. They weren't they weren't matching up. The insignia were different. The the markings on the cuffs, the markings on the on the sleeves. And so I finally determined after a close analysis that these guys were customs units. Um, and my photographer actually testified at one point. He said these German killers were were, were finance guards. Finance guards. What is that? So these guys were supposed to be checking packages at the local train station or in the post office. And this is an all volunteer killing squad because the two Ukrainians were uh, stayed behind when the Red Army evacuated and volunteered to be part of the militia. For them, it was about opportunism, social mobility, you know, access to plunder and goods, and and anti-Semitism. So these were kind of some of the local um, Ukrainian. Um, some of them were thugs, you know, they were they were pretty uh, notorious uh, in their communities. It's, they uh, they were prosecuted after the war for their uh, for their sadism. And then there were these German kind of customs guards who were as cruel and as statistic. Um, don't be fooled just because they're in uniform that they're somehow more civilized because um, the one the two men here, um, uh, Kuska and Voigt, those are their names. Um, uh, the doc documentation that I uncovered about them uh, was pretty startling as far as um, their eagerness to participate in this and going back to the barracks and reenacting what they had done and how they had doled out shots um, uh, to the back of the neck to these Jewish um, victims. And and this this all took place uh, in or near Mirapol. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I looked that up online and it, it doesn't appear to be a very large, at least population wise today, but back then it was, I guess, sort of a thriving community. And, and what was so horrifying about what you're just describing is these people knew many of their victims, maybe not intimately in the sense of having them over for dinner, but they, 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 knew, they knew them through their dentist's office. They knew them as shopkeepers. They were members of the community. They were fellow members of this community. C can you even possibly explain how such evil can come from such circumstances where you know at least to some degree, the people that you're killing and you're killing them only because they are Jewish. This is something that my colleague Jan Gross had um, was manifested in his study called Neighbors about a community called Yedwabny in Poland in which the Polish part of the of the of the town, um, I mean, just obliterated, murdered in the most vicious way, putting them in barns and burning them and pitchforks, I mean, just horrific. So half of the population of Poles murdering the other half of the population, roughly, of, of, of Jews. So this, in, and that book came out in 2000. So, you know, we've been really um, puzzled by, there's no easy answers to this reality. This is, it's dumbfounding to think of the intimacy of that violence, of the communities living together, and that can turn um, in that radical way, whereby another part of your community is just considered you know, unworthy of, of life, of living, um, and that it's carried out by that crosscut of society, again, not in uniform, but by the local mayor, the uh, the local uh, teachers, the local priests, you know, and this is a kind of collective violence um, carried out by, you know, in more of a social, social historical way. Um, and the same thing happened in Mirapol. And it, this is an old town, part of the Pale of Settlement in Ukraine was established by Catherine the Great in the 18th century, where we have high had high concentrations of Jews. Um, these are the shtetls that are, are depicted in, in a lot of the um, stories like Fiddler on the Roof. And Mirapol 
also is part of that is the heartland of this um, of this Jewish life in the Pale Settlement, and was um, depicted in in Yiddish literature by um, Ansky, a playwright, uh, an ethnographer. Uh, the play The Dubuk was um, set in the town of Mirapol. Was a thriving religious and secular community, about 4,000 Jews, and had been reduced to about 1,200 by the time the Nazis arrived, um, and it was completely wiped out. They, I, I know of one um, survivor from these massacres, um, and she died in 2015. And I really had to rely a lot on on her testimony as far as what happened. She actually crawled out of the pit. Oh. Wendy, uh, you know. Um... We've got about three and a half minutes left here, and I think we could talk to you for three more days, but we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about your 2013 book, Hitler's Furies, German Women in the Nazi Killing Fields. One of the things that strikes me from your scholarship is the ordinary, everyday, normal, I'm using air quotes, uh, 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 participants uh, in in these atrocities. Uh, can you tell us, tell the audience a little bit about the role that women played in the Holocaust as perpetrators? Sure. Um, you're getting at an issue that uh, is really one of the main themes in Holocaust and genocide studies, the assumption that because of the scale of killing in the 20th century, including the Holocaust, um, one just assumes that this is a modern chapter in history. If you have the mechanisms of the modern state and all of its resources, whether it's train cars or uh, or guns um, or and gas chemicals, um, then, then this is genocide is a modern phenomenon. And in fact, it's not. Um, it, it's 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 a uh, there's something fundamental about it in, in the way that we have evolved and the way that we treat one another <laughs> and our very the various ideologies that we attach ourselves to and become so passionate about that can turn extremely violent. And that means that it happens outside of the kind of halls of government and of the ministries. That means that ordinary men and women and even children and societies participate in this and that the scale of destruction is possible as much because we have those modern means as well because we have the participation of people like the women in Hitler's Furies that um, act independently because they can be as anti-Semitic and as nationalistic and, or, you know, in a pre-modern case, be as Catholic or as Protestant or, you know, whatever the idea is, they can also adopt it and act out on it in the most violent way. They have that capacity. Um, They don't typically or historically um, lead or populate kind of the, the community of perpetrators, but they're really necessary for it because the men often commit these crimes to safeguard their women and children or in the name of their women and children. So there's a dynamic between the men and women that escalates this and that aggravates it as far as how they legitimize and and how they carry it out. And in Hitler's Furies, there are several cases of women acting with men as like partners in crime, but they're they're socialized in the same way as the men. And so that that bill that capability is there. Um, and I, that's something I wanted to put on record and also um, be be aware of as we look into the future and, and think about women in uh, in our leadership in in government um, and you know just in all walks of life in medicine. There, you know, all of the types of perpetrators that Holocaust studies has brought out in a nuanced way, whether they're technocrats or they're doctors or they're SS men or commandants, we have female versions of all of them. Maybe not as many, but they're all there.
Uh, so, Wendy, this is a remarkable conversation, and unfortunately, we're just out of time. I hope that you'll come back and join us again. She's Dr. Wendy Lauer. The book is The Ravine. It's remarkable. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, or visit PeltCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>